Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. Being in West Berlin, 110 miles behind the Iron Curtain, surrounded by a million Russian and East German troops was quite a feeling. This is True Spies, Episode 9, Shadow Games. Berlin, 1977. The front line of the Cold War, divided by a four-meter-high concrete wall topped with barbed wire, watchtowers, and guards trained to shoot to kill any trespassers who dared attempt to cross. To the east of the wall, the German Democratic Republic, the front line of the Soviet Union's communist bloc, a once cosmopolitan city ravaged by the Second World War and slowly rebuilt Soviet-style. Its inhabitants were growing ever more restless with the city's poor working conditions, low pay and totalitarian regime. Violent clashes between activists and the Stasi, East Germany's notorious secret police, were a common sight. To the west of the wall, a different city of cafes, bars, theatres and public parks. Administered by France, Great Britain and the US, 70s West Berlin attracted the likes of David Bowie, Lou Reed, and Iggy Pop. Its cinemas showing the hit musical Cabaret on repeat. But West Berlin wasn't just a bohemian playground. Under the surface, it was a powder keg waiting to explode into a third world war between the communist regime to the east and the allied forces to the west. Its streets were home to the world's most powerful intelligence services, playing a game of shadows, seeking any advantage over their enemies. In amongst it all was our guide to the clandestine operations of the US in Cold War Berlin. My name is James Daiskel. I was assigned to Special Forces Berlin twice, from 1977 to 1981, and then again from 1984 to 1989. The mission of Special Forces Berlin was to slow down the Russian forces when and if they would ever attack NATO in Western Europe. Our mission specifically was to sabotage the Russian infrastructure and buy NATO and the Allied forces time to meet a Russian attack. Special Forces Berlin, an elite secret army unit based in the city, was made up of only around 100 men, a team of just 100 to stall the outbreak of a world war against one million combatants on all sides. No pressure then. We would work behind the lines to destroy the Soviet infrastructure when and if the war started. The Soviet infrastructure being things like the rail lines that went around Berlin that were critical to moving forces power plants, Soviet field headquarters. We had a number of targets that our teams were assigned to take out. James and the soldiers of Special Forces Berlin merged unseen into the German population. 
taking on European aliases to learn the secrets of the city, building trust with assets to extract the information they needed to destroy their targets when the time came. Well, I spoke German, but my German was not to the level that a German security guard would say you're a German, but uh, my identification showed me to be Greek, which is part of my background. So I was a Greek, uh, what the Germans called a Gastarbeiter, a foreign worker, and I had complete identification that showed me to be a Greek national. So I spoke the German and the Greek. Uh, so I was just trying to cover the fact that I was an American. <laughs> This episode of True Spies tells the story of what was then a very different kind of operative. The kind that could gather intelligence on a target and then take them out themselves. It's no wonder then that when the US government had to rescue 52 hostages held in the US Embassy in Tehran in 1979, they turned to this small unit in Berlin for help. You could say it was inevitable that James would end up in the Special Forces. I had two older brothers, one of whom was in the 1960s, would have been referred to as a beatnik. He was a rebel. I had a middle brother that was probably more conservative than I was. But uh, I was always enamored of my father's second job. Uh, he had a first job, but uh, he was in the U.S. Army Reserves. He was in World War II and Korea. He, he was my guidepost, really, for uh, what I wanted to do eventually. I knew it was going to be something that was outdoors, adventure-like. I went back and forth between becoming a park ranger or an oceanographer. But it was the 1968 movie Where Eagles Dare that sealed the deal. Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton, of course, uh, the British uh, commando and the American Ranger who uh, jump into Germany. Um, it's all part of a big deception plan to catch a German spy who is working in the British headquarters. Anyway, it encapsulates just about everything that I ever wanted to do in the army. You know, jumping into an enemy country, working in civilian clothes, lots of weapons and fun things like that. After college, James joined the military thinking, somewhat naively, that when you got there, you just wrote your name on the sign-up sheet for the Secret Special Forces Department. And then you were in. Well, it was a bit of a misconception on my part. Uh, a recruiter told me that's what I could do. I could just sign up and go in, but that was not actually the case. So I ended up in a conventional infantry unit, which was not a bad thing, but it's not exactly where I wanted to be. And so from day one, I was planning on making my escape and getting over to Special Forces. Ostensibly, you're supposed to have some experience already to know the military to know your job, and then you can make application for it. So after about 18 months, I was able to take the test. Luckily, I made it through. Life in the Special Forces was different to the regular infantry. It suited James. I'm not going to say it did not have discipline, but the, the standards were much different. They expected you to know their job. Uh, they did not do stupid things, uh, like make you show up for formations every day with a spit shine boots and pressed uniforms. 
As a matter of fact, the first time I showed up at the company headquarters when I was assigned to a special forces unit after about um, 10 months of training, my team sergeant came up to me and said, okay, you look very good. Uniform's all pressed, your boots are shiny. Don't ever show up that way again. Because they did not press their uniforms, they did not spit shine their boots, uh, they made sure their equipment was ready and worked, but they were all about the job and not about the show. Things were about to get a lot more like those spy movies James watched as a teenager. Whilst on an exercise in Germany, he heard whispers about a secret unit within special forces that was based in Berlin. My first special forces unit was in the States. We deployed to Germany and were part of a large exercise there. And one of the guys that was helping us out, he was in civilian clothes. He looked German, he spoke German well. I got to know him a bit and I said, what are you, who are you? And he said, well, actually I'm one of you. And so I thought he was from a different special forces unit elsewhere, but he goes, no, not quite, and kind of left it at that. And it was only through asking some of the people on my team about it that they finally told me, he said, well, actually, there's a unit in Berlin that nobody talks about, and it's a special forces unit. And from that moment, I wanted to be part of that unit. A little background on this clandestine Cold War unit, known as Special Forces Berlin. They were based in West Berlin, known to the Westerners as an island of freedom, surrounded on all sides by Soviet-controlled East Germany. That meant, of course, that should the Allies posted in the city be attacked, there was nowhere nearby to retreat to. It was the unit's job to buy them time to escape to Allied-controlled West Germany a hundred miles away. By the time James joined, the unit had been around for almost 20 years. It came to be in 1956, at really the beginning of the Cold War, when the commander of the US occupation forces in Berlin had decided that he needed more than just conventional infantry and conventional armor. He requested specialists that would help him do sabotage tasks in case of war. And the army in its infinite wisdom decided that a company of special forces troops would be assigned to Berlin undercover, under military cover, but they would be assigned there, and that was the start of the unit. And from the very beginning, its mission was, as one of the commanders of the U.S. forces in Europe, was to buy the military time in case the Russians attacked the West. And that was to sabotage the Russians in any way possible to slow their advance into West Germany and into France, into the NATO countries. This tactic of inserting a clandestine force behind enemy lines to disrupt the enemy is known as unconventional warfare. Well, unconventional warfare really is a very broad term. Special forces on its own does unconventional warfare. When you put a team into a country to work with the locals um, in uniform, but behind the enemy lines, that is unconventional warfare. Working with guerrillas uh, against superior military forces, unconventional warfare. What Berlin was doing was taking the tactics of the Office of Strategic Services that worked in World War II 
dropping military people in civilian clothes to work with resistance forces in France. That's essentially what we were going to do in East Germany. Um, We were in civilian clothes about half the time. So in 1977, a 23-year-old James Stasekal found himself with his new identity tucked safely in his back pocket, heading for the front line of the Cold War. Take a moment to ask yourself, as you prepare to wave goodbye to your family, would you be able to do it? Detach yourself from your life, everything that makes you, you? If you think you'd struggle, don't worry, even secret agents do. There were a number of people that, within Special Forces as a whole, within the US Army, had a bit of a difficulty with that, not being able to tell people who they were and what they were doing. As far as working with people, I didn't have any problem. You know, they they would ask me what I did, and I would give them the very boring response that um, I'm working in with the U.S. military here. I don't do anything fancy, uh, so yeah, my life is not interesting. Please go away. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. James says when he arrived, it really was like something out of a spy novel. Being in. West Berlin, 110 miles behind the uh, Iron Curtain inside East Germany, surrounded by a million Russian and East German troops, was it was quite a feeling. The first time I was there, the unit was right around 95 people. So the total number of Americans, British and French forces was probably around 12,000 in the city. And we were about a hundred of that. And on the other side of the wall, as I said, you were close to a million Russian and East German troops. So we were kind of outnumbered. Having arrived in Berlin, your first assignment? Eins. Disappear into the shadows. So to be in Berlin, basically you had to adopt a persona of being boring, not to attract attention to yourself. But I think one of the big things about the life in Berlin was, if you're not kicking doors and shooting guns and blowing explosives, it can be pretty boring. Being out on a surveillance mission for hours at a time or running a counter surveillance route or casing a spot for a particular mission is very long and slow and tedious, and you have to have discipline to do that. And you also have the discipline to want to do it. Assignment two. Zwei. Reconnaissance. When we were collecting information, um, it was primarily by observation and what would be called elicitation. Basically, conversation with somebody that you thought might know something. Our requirements were to support our wartime mission, so much of what we needed would be by actually going out and observing it. And that might mean surveillance of, of a portion of the wall, surveillance of military unit on the other side of the wall. And a lot of our time was spent looking for those spots where we could exploit the weakness in the East German defensive system. Uh, We used aerial photography. We used 
foot reconnaissance within West Berlin, and we used some means to check out what was on the other side of the Berlin Wall as well. Whilst gathering information, James slipped across the wall to East Berlin and deeper into enemy territory, posing as a civilian or a soldier, depending on what the mission called for. The difference between West Berlin and East Berlin was so stark. The economic differences, the color, the buildings, cars, everything, everything was different. It's just an oppressive atmosphere. You can tell from when you process through the checkpoints and go into the country and go into East Berlin or even East Germany, that it's a different area. And you just feel like you're under surveillance. You feel a threat. It's sort of an ominous air about you. And it, it may be psychological. I'm not sure that you could ever get used to it, but coming from the United States, it was the difference between being in Texas and, and, and being inside of a prison. Very much an unoppressive feel. And you'd come back into West Germany and or West Berlin, and it would be a lighter atmosphere. There was just a palpable difference between the two cities. Back in West Berlin, your mission has been a success and you've located someone who knows something you need. How do you get them to open up? Getting the asset to talk, a guide. With the elicitation techniques, you would try to talk to a person and work around subjects until they would start to reveal information that you might have interest in. And it's just a method to talk and continually prize out the information the person has with them either not realizing what you're asking for or them just totally willing to talk to you. It's a delicate technique and it may or may not work and you may have to change routes on it. Some people will not talk to you at all about something. And other people will be happy to talk to you about it. Yeah. So it, it is building relationship, talking to a person, working on their personalities to get them to talk about something. And again, it would depend on what it was. But you know, you're you're probably not going to get the nuclear secrets from somebody by talking to them in a bar, but uh, unless they really wanted to share with you. <laughs> are you up to the job, or are you lacking the skills? James says it's not too late for you. It's definitely something you can learn from my later career with the agency. When you're an insider, that's what you get to call the CIA. I had a senior officer come up to me once who I was working with, and he said, Jim, you're just like I was when I started. You're an introvert. You need to become an extrovert. So at certain times in my life, I became an extrovert so that I could talk to somebody and interact with them well. And other times, I'm back to my normal self, being an introvert. Now, so the, there's two different schools of thought on this. Some people say extroverts are better at being intelligence agents, uh, intelligence collectors. I actually think that's incorrect. I think introverts are because extroverts tend to talk too much and not listen. Whereas introverts, it's just the opposite. But living for a long time undercover, building relationships with those around you, 
Surely the lines must blur sometimes. After all, even secret agents need friends. Well, you... You had a few American friends, the people in the unit, although we did not associate really closely with the other teams. We kept our distance. But uh, you also had local friends, uh, local girlfriends, uh, maybe boyfriends, I don't know. And you you got to know them. Some of them were just friends, and others were people that uh, you thought might be useful when the time came. Uh, someone who could help uh, give you a safe house, a place to stay, a person that might be able to move you uh, with a truck, a person that could give you a warehouse to store things. So those, those were all aspects. So... You, you look at people and say, hey, what can they do for me? And I know that's a bit one-sided, but it was a requirement of the mission. You had, to, you had to look for people that could help you. This is the reality of friendships when you're a spy. There's very little room for sentiment. Well, I think it's like any other friendship. I mean, certain people you would engage with just because you wanted to be able to use them for something. And that was more of a business relationship. But then you also might have a close friend who would turn out to be somebody that could help you. And it's like any other friendship. Uh, you have a friend and someday you know you might have to ask them for a favor. And they may or may not be able to help. They may not want to help. So you have to take those things into consideration. Most people made it very clear, most of the Germans uh, or, you know, sometimes other nationalities, that they understood why the Allies were in Berlin. And they made it very clear that either they would support the mission or they would not. It was fairly simple to figure out their politics. Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. So how close did it come to what they called Day X? 
the code name for the day when the Third World War would begin. We lived under sort of a, a threat of war at all times, but at certain times it was more ominous than others. Um, I think if you go back to the beginning of the Cold War until the end, 1990, let's call it, there were points along that time spectrum where the threat of war was higher than others. Obviously, when the wall went up in 63, the Cuban Missile Crisis, those were all spikes uh, in the relationships between the Warsaw Pact, Russia, and NATO and the United States. So it, it went up and down. In the 1970s, though, I remember even more of a threat was the threat of terrorism. And yeah, it was localized. It was not as grave as World War III, but that was more of an issue at that point of time. So between 1972 and 1980, the threat of terrorism in Europe was one of the bigger threats. One of the threats James is referring to is the Red Brigades, a far-left terrorist organization from Italy responsible for a string of violent attacks and assassinations, such as the murder of Italy's 38th Prime Minister, Aldo Moro, in 1978. Their aim was to remove Italy from NATO and create what they called a revolutionary state. With extremist organizations like the Red Brigades popping up across Europe, Africa and the Middle East, Special Forces Berlin turned their attention to a new type of mission, counter-terrorism. Special Forces Berlin was the first American unit to be involved with counter-terrorism missions. And this is, of course, when when terrorism is picking up in Europe, the commander of American forces decided that skyjacking, plane hijacking, was a problem, and he wanted to make sure that he could do something to counter it. And Berlin was selected to, to train up for that mission of being a counter-hijacking unit. And it went on 1974, 1975, we started preparing for even larger uh, counterterrorism missions, anti-hijacking, hostage barricade incidents, and things like that. And the unit uh, by 1978 had 12 assault teams and also 12 sniper teams set up to do the counterterrorism mission. And this is all while we're training for a regular mission. So it was a very busy time. The unit's biggest counterterrorism mission since its inception came in 1979, the Iran hostage crisis. On the 4th of November, 1979, the US embassy in Tehran was seized by Iranian students who took 66 people inside hostage following the overthrow of the country's liberal leader, Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. In the weeks that followed the takeover, hostages were released. Women, African-Americans, and citizens of countries other than the US, people who, the Iranians believed, were already subject to the oppression of American society. Those that remained inside the embassy were held for a further 14 months. Meanwhile, a small number of hostages were also held at the foreign ministry. The President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, was unable to negotiate their release diplomatically, 
so a plan was devised to rescue the hostages quickly and with minimal collateral damage. It would not be a simple undertaking. Their target was in hostile territory and too far from US bases for conventional methods of reconnaissance. Aerial photographs of the embassy wouldn't cut it. They needed someone on the ground who'd get to know the city's streets inside and out, its traffic patterns, the best routes to and from the city, the layout of the embassy building. They needed Special Forces Berlin. The Iran mission was both an extremely complex and an extremely delicate mission because President Carter did not want to commit overwhelming military force to rescuing the hostages. So in some ways, it was almost a, a bargain basement kind of operation. Uh, very few people, very few resources, just the resources that were absolutely necessary. But part of that made it necessary to have very precise intelligence on what was going on in Tehran. And that required putting people on the ground. Now, the CIA was not able to do so because most of their officers had been taken hostage and were in the embassy. They did not have any good communications methods with any of their people that were left behind. Uh, Special Forces Berlin was chosen for the Iran mission because of its training and because of its mission of working undercover to collect information. A conventional military intelligence guy might be able to go in undercover, but would not have the background to know what he was looking for as far as an offensive hostage rescue mission. So three of James's comrades were assigned to the job. They were to drop silently into Tehran disguised as businessmen and collect the intelligence the US government needed to plan a rescue. It was the first phase of what became known as Operation Eagle Claw. Now this part of the operation has remained top secret for almost 40 years. It is only in recent years, thanks to James, that the world knows what really happened during the most infamous rescue operation in US military history. James should take the story from here. And the people that were chosen were Americans who knew what they were looking for uh, to set up the mission. One of the guys was nicknamed the Mad German. Uh, he is still around, and I'm not going to uh, reveal his name. But uh, he was a German national, sort of an irascible personality, uh, very direct uh, speaking, but uh, very knowledgeable and able to carry off another personality quite well. The second guy I have named Scotty. Uh, he was uh, Scott and uh, spoke English with a funny accent, but uh, his cover was to go in as a buyer for certain goods in Iran. A third American by the name of Dick Meadows was a civilian. Uh, had been military and served with special forces in Vietnam. And then there was a fourth guy who was probably either the craziest or the bravest of them all, was an Air Force guy who was Iranian national, joined the American Air Force and was a technician and just volunteered because he spoke the language and said, I'd like to help. And he was one of the guys that went over as a quote-unquote aide to Dick Meadows, and he was a translator. So he had no training whatsoever. All he had was an Iranian passport and the desire to help out. 
When they arrived in the city, uh, they moved into basically hotels that, that were either close to the area they had to look at or, in some cases, away from other foreigners. Um, the Mad German chose a hotel that just happened to be sort of the hospice for the new Iranian government. So he was living among a bunch of um, Iranian government officials while doing his mission. Scotty and some of the others stayed in uh, hotels like the Intercontinental, where there were a lot of foreign journalists and foreign businessmen, uh, and worked from there. They were in. Now for the tricky part. So the basic layout of what they had to do was to figure out the best way to get a force of around 110 men from the outside of the city into the two targets, the uh, embassy compound and the foreign ministry compound. So part of that was acquiring a warehouse with vehicles, knowing the streets back and forth intimately so that they could drive them at night, knowing the target facility as well as they uh, could to observe what was happening in those locations, to look at the, the people that were holding the hostages, figure out what kind of weapons they had, what their security posture was, were they awake or were they not awake during the day and night. They looked at the walls, the locks, the chains, the gates, everything, to figure out how to get into those facilities. And basically, every small bit of information that you could possibly want uh, to plan the mission. All under the noses of the city's government and police. Not to mention the notorious Revolutionary Guard. This was before the internet and mobile phones. So how to get the intel back to the US government without being intercepted. There was a lot of memorization going on. There were cameras. Uh, they took photography, they took pictures, even video in some cases. And they were able to smuggle all that information out, either in cryptic notes or memorized. A lot of ingenuity on their part uh, to go in and collect the information and to get it out safely. But what if they did get caught? They would have had no backing. They would have been arrested as spies, probably put on trial and either jailed or shot. The stakes were high. The entire US government was relying on them. The lives of 52 people were in their hands. Then a close call. One day, Scotty and Dick were in their car Retracing a route that Scotty had determined was the best way to get to a location. Unfortunately, he had walked that route. He hadn't driven it. And when the mad German was driving the route, Scotty was giving him directions based on his walk and put him into a bus lane, which was a restricted lane, much like London. He got stopped behind two buses, and a policeman walked over and started giving him a hard time about being in the wrong lane. Once he determined that it was a foreigner, he obviously wanted uh, documentation. When Mad German went to look for his ID, he couldn't find his briefcase, uh, his passport, and his international driver's license being a rather large document. Uh, he had squirreled away into his briefcase. 
Unfortunately, Dick had moved the briefcase to the trunk. Stop. In the trunk are the papers and all the surveillance equipment for the mission. What would you do? The police officer is looking expectantly at you, waiting for you to hand over your driver's license. He's getting suspicious. You're here on official business, supposedly, so why the hesitation? If the policeman sees what's in the trunk of the car, it's game over. How are you going to get your papers without revealing your true identity? So Matt German had to figure out how to get from the front seat of the car to the trunk to get his papers without having the cop seeing his radio and other equipment sitting in the trunk. So he put his evil twin into action and started yelling at the cop. And while he was doing that, walked to the back of the car, opened up the trunk, and was able to get his briefcase out without opening the trunk too far. It was basically through a sleight of a hand, I think, uh, that nothing happened there. Needless to say, he was upset with Scotty for not seeing the fact that it was a bus lane, and he was upset with Dick for moving his stuff without telling him. That was probably the closest they came uh, to actually being arrested. Intelligence collected. Fast forward to April 24th, 1980, the night of the U.S. military raid on the embassy in Tehran. Operatives in helicopters and planes are ready to make their way to the city and then to the embassy to rescue the hostages and fly them out of Iran. But quickly, the operation descended into chaos. Three of eight helicopters failed, crippling crucial plans. The mission was rapidly canceled. But during the withdrawal, one of the retreating helicopters collided with one of the six transport planes, killing eight servicemen and injuring five. It was a disaster. James was in Germany with the rest of his unit awaiting news of the rescue. The 25th of April, 1980, I woke up in southern Germany. I was in a small guest house supporting an operation there. I went down to the breakfast bar and saw the newspaper lying on a table that basically said, American rescue attempt in Iran fails. And I knew exactly what it was at that point. I didn't know what had happened, but I picked up the German newspaper and read it. And it was one of those moments of like dismay, despair, uh, heart-wrenching kind of feeling, knowing that the operation had failed and eight servicemen had been killed uh, in the accident that followed the mission being called off. Um, so it was, it was a very bad moment from about then on. What do you do when the worst thing that could happen does happen? Morale was low. The only thing I can say for morale is you press on regardless. Um, we had our own internal ways of dealing with things. Uh, maybe there was a bit more drinking than usual, but we also were more oriented uh, now or directly after the accident, after the mission abort. We are more revenge-minded, I think. Uh, very much upset with the way things had gone. We were already beginning to plan for the second uh, operation. But that second operation never came. 
because in November 1980, America got a new president in Ronald Reagan, and negotiations commenced again and, thankfully, all the hostages were eventually released. But remember the mad German, Scotty and the other Berlin operatives? Well, they were still in Tehran and needed to get out of there quickly. Unfortunately, somebody in the Department of Defense, somewhere deep in the bowels of the Pentagon, gave a deep background briefing that said, oh, and by the way, some American soldiers are inside Duran or were inside Duran collecting intelligence. And at that moment, they knew they were in deep, um, what's the word? Deep something. Uh, so they, they had to find their way back out of the city. They already had open-ended tickets on their airline flights. But they also knew that they couldn't run for the airport. Uh, so they waited several days and then were able to go through the airport. They were questioned, naturally, being foreigners. But they ended up getting onto the airplane one by one. The sigh of relief when the plane took off must have been immense. And I understand a few cognacs were knocked back during the flight home. James stayed in Berlin until 1989. In the end, he left just months before the fall of the Berlin Wall on November 8th that year, the moment that marked the end of the Cold War. He stayed with the Special Forces until an injury took him out of active duty. And I was in Somalia in 1992, essentially helping get American forces into country. I had been there for about a month and we were deep inside Somalia when the vehicle I was riding in ran over an anti-tank mine. And we were the first casualties in Somalia. Three of us were injured fairly badly, and then uh, one of us was uh, killed outright. And that, that injury basically put me out of the active team mode and I began to work uh, staff operations after that. And a couple of years later, uh, 1996, um, I was about to get married. I had 23 years in the military by then. And I said, well, it's basically time to change gears and try a new career. For the next 13 years, I worked overseas uh, intelligence operations with the CIA. When James looks back at his life, he's glad he spent it living in the shadows of Cold War Europe and didn't decide to become an oceanographer or a park ranger instead. I can't really imagine going back and redoing things, knowing what I do now about what I would have missed, good points and bad. You know, I've done some other things since I've retired from the military. I've become a historian, a writer and a conflict archaeologist uh, looking at aspects of conflict around the world. So everything that I have done in my life has been sort of a sequential plan that I didn't make up, but worked out for me pretty well as it did anyway. So I, I'm happy with things now and I can't really imagine going back. If you try to get some intel of your own about Special Forces Berlin, you won't come across very much. If you do, it's likely to have James's name attached to it, thanks to his book, Special Forces Berlin, which he wrote in 2017. 
It was classified. Many of the records, um, the official military records, uh, were destroyed. Some have been lost. Uh, had that book not been written, there would basically be no history of the unit, uh, no legacy for anyone to read about. Without James Stayscow, the legacy of this elite unit was completely unknown to the public, and even to most of the military. I'm Hayley Atwell. Join us next week for another liaison with True Spies. We all have valuable spy skills, and our experts are here to help you discover yours. Get an authentic assessment of your spy skills, created by a former head of training at British Intelligence, for free now at spyscape.com. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.